1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Greetings. The following interview for Native American Heritage Month is a collaboration between the Faculty Association of California Community Colleges' Amplifying Voices podcast, the New Books Network's History and Native American Studies channels, and academic press affiliates. I'm Ryan Tripp, your host for today's uh, synergic fo- focus on essay collect- and on essay collection entitled Understanding and Teaching Native American History. Recently published by the University of Wisconsin Press as the latest installment in the Harvey Goldberg series. Christopher Ray, a uh, UNC Wilmington professor of history, and Brady DeSanti, director of Native studies and associate professor of religious studies at the University of Nebraska Omaha, uh, both co edited the book and have graciously
1: agreed to join us. Welcome, Chris and Brady. Well, thanks very Good much day. for having us. We really appreciate give, uh, the opportunity to talk about the book.
2: Definitely. Great, great to be here. Thank you so much. So, to start, can you introduce yourselves and discuss your past collaborating as editors on this collection? And if you want to, you can adjust the cover um, if it's significant.
1: Okay, why don't, why don't I start? Because I think I was the uh, um, initial... Uh, point of contact Um, my my background is in uh, uh, the native south uh, that is to say the the I, 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 study, uh, political identity formation and, and, um, the, uh, uh, legal and cultural ramifications of, of, uh, the evolution of race and race law, uh, and what becomes the American South. Um, I study primarily in the early modern or, or what in the European sense is known as the early modern period. Um, and, uh, most recently I was, I've been, uh, working in a rather detailed way, uh, with, with, uh, the evolution of of uh, Cherokee identity and agency and power uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, As far as uh, uh, the the collaboration is concerned, the uh, project began uh, when the University of uh, Wisconsin Press uh, um, called me and and asked me if I would be willing to uh, um, edit this volume for the Goldberg series, um, and uh, my response it, 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 to that explains a little bit more of my background. Uh, my m- My immediate response was to express interest in doing this, and and you know, very serious interest in doing this. But um, as a non-native person, I felt that it was inappropriate for me to edit this by myself, um, and that there should be direct and meaningful collaboration uh, with native country on this particular particular uh topic um and so uh, that was the start of the conversation and and um as i i was working towards come uh, finding a co-editor uh, a mutual friend of, of mine and, and Brady uh, said uh, said to me well I have this you know wonderful person he does Native American studies at, at uh, University of Nebraska Omaha um, why don't you give him a call and, and see what he says and and uh, thankfully he uh, um, agreed to come on board and um, it's it's been just a tremendous collaboration ever since.
3: Right. Uh, I'll echo that is that it's kind of funny. Uh, So I'm associate professor of religious studies and I'm the current director of the University of Nebraska at Omaha or UNO's uh, Native American Studies program. And I believe this is around 2016, 17. I had just uh, been recommended by my home department in religious studies for tenure and promotion. And so I was really looking to kind of just, you know, take it easy for a while. And I got an email from Chris and before I responded, the, the person who'd recommended that we collaborate was my uh, dissertation advisor. So a very good friend to me and to Chris. So I called uh, this individual and I said, what's going on? You know, you know, I'm, I'm tired and burned out. You know, I'm always burned out. So <laughs> but he just said, I think you'd be really good for this. And so the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I've never been part of a project like this. I never saw myself really being part of a book project. And. So I thought it was a good opportunity, and so I responded to Chris, and then we uh, arranged a phone call, and we just hit it off. Uh, Chris has just been a real joy uh, to work with. He's he's a great friend, and so that started our collaboration, and we work really well together, Uh, and uh, we got some really good contributors uh, that were very easy to work with, and we're very proud of the finished product. I. Uh, you know, it, it kind of surpassed even my expectations, um, and so yeah, that's that's where this project, sort of the genesis, came from. And I'm really glad that I didn't uh, try and you know wiggle out of it and so forth, because it was just like talking to Chris, um, and he really has, uh, I think, pretty substantial experience with editing books and so forth. And this is my first my first foray into this uh, to this field, and so it, it, again. Couldn't be happier with our collaboration and the finished product and um go from there all right oh,
1: as, as so far ahead. as the, the oh I'm, I'm i'm sorry i just as far as the the cover photograph uh uh brady if you uh, you're you're much more uh, attuned to that i mean the, the photograph is tremendous but it, he's an acquaintance of yours uh i think
3: well i had seen um one of our contributors uh josh thunder little had that on his social media sort of desktop background and it's from standing rock it's an iconic photo taken during the standing rock uh, about the dakota access pipeline and we uh the person who took that uh photo i don't have their name ready but um that they we you know obviously the uh publishers had to get permission from this individual and they made a request that they said that there has to be native contributors to this book and to this uh to this project um, and there certainly are. And so they gave us permission to do this. And it's a very famous photo. It's sort of you see that and you start to understand, well, this is Standing Rock. Um, and a very large intertribal coalition, even larger than uh, probably than Tecumseh and his younger brother Tinkswatawas, you know, and lead up to the War of 1812, which was obviously one of the largest. So we thought that that photo basically um demonstrates that we're not just talking about Native peoples as the past, but as people with ongoing histories and and relevancy here in in the present and so forth. So that's where that photo came from, and uh, it's a wonderful photo.
2: All right. So your intro begins for the collection begins with, Indigenous people are crucial to America.
1: Why did you choose this statement to inaugurate the collection? Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, it, it, this actually builds upon what what uh, Brady was just saying about the photograph of Standing Rock. Um, I, I, the, uh, the 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 statement I think makes a reference to uh, um, to American history, um, and the uh, uh, where we started this project is is to say um, uh, the standard narrative of North America is incomplete uh because we've had a tendency for 400 years to erase the native voice uh w- w- which has led as a uh, um a- as a-, a-, a sort of un- a very unfortunate reality uh to the to the peripheralization of native people when in fact you cannot understand north american history without placing native people in that central position. Um, it, in, in effect, it flips the script of the, the story of American development in many ways. And, and uh, uh, so that's where we, uh, uh, that was our starting premise that you can't make sense of North American history without placing native people in that central position um, and everything else that flows into this volume starts there. I just wanted to uh,
2: clarify: Indigenous people are crucial to American history.
1: No, agreed. <laughs> right.
3: right. Well, and and to kind of build upon that, I think that we really wanted to challenge what is often referred to as a master history of of uh, American history, in, in which you know um, the the account was one of triumphalism um, with a, an agenda, right? And that had been passed on uh, through the historiography that oftentimes would include Native peoples through stereotypical depictions, you know, with Frederick Jackson Turner, that Native people were sort of associated with part of the wilderness to be overcome with westward expansion, Um, and, and really the omission of Native voices from the historical record, really, after Thanksgiving. I mean, I talk to my students oftentimes, and they can be in AP history courses and so forth, and oftentimes Native peoples disappear from the historical record and from these accounts in terms of, of teaching and and curriculum in high school and some college courses after Thanksgiving and maybe mentions of of forced removals and relocations with various Trail of Tears and so forth, episodes. And uh, so, yeah, to build upon that is that you can't understand what we call American history without centering uh, Native voices and perspectives uh, throughout, whether it's the American Revolution, whether it's, more contemporary issues and so forth that they're are front and center. So we really wanted to uh, kind of rectify uh, what a lot of uh, the history books I grew up uh, reading and so forth. There was just this very, uh, you know, it, the it, it was a, an absence of native uh, agency and so forth. And and I enjoy basically, you know, teaching the subject matter and and this volume I, I believe. Uh, a good job of including native voices in a, an appropriate and responsible manner.
2: So you've already alluded to this, but if you can, if you want to elaborate, you can. Uh, what are the purposes of the collection, particularly for teachers at all levels in higher education, and in the context of the indigenous lived experience as well as the historical record?
1: Go ahead, Brady, if you want to start.
2: Well, we uh, we approached a
3: specialist in uh, Native American history and Native American studies various scholars that, and we really wanted to uh, fit a need for uh, high school American history teachers and some college professors of American history that wanted to include native history and perspectives in their curriculum, but were insecure about how to do that in a responsible manner. And maybe they didn't have a frame of reference and a familiarity with, with the, the, the books and the, the scholarship out there. So we thought it would be very helpful to say, take your research specialization on various topics in Native history and studies and articulate in a chapter how you actually teach that to students. And we try to encourage uh, our contributors to kind of focus on maybe classroom activities, whether it be class debates and so forth. Uh, So it's really about uh, a a roadmap on how to uh, teach these, these various topics and uh, to, to assist uh, high school and college professors uh, so that they actually had a good source and with our bibliography and so forth, that they, they could feel confident yes. in including native history and, and topics in, their, uh, in the classroom.
1: Absolutely. And, and one thing that I would, would add to that is that, that um, it, In in my uh, admittedly not extensive experience with K through twelve, and then at the uh, general U.S. survey level at the at the college level, there's a tendency for uh, teachers uh, to engage in good faith, but nevertheless engage in. Mythology and stereotypes, and and uh, to accept grand narrative as reality when the historical uh, when historical complexity would suggest that the grand narrative uh, falls apart. And so, one of the the uh, uh, key issues for us was to help teachers, whether it's at the, the high school AP level or at the undergraduate uh, uh, level to move beyond myths and stereotypes and and actually engage native realities. Uh, the, a, as you noted, Ryan, the native lived experience, both historically and in an ongoing sense. And, and uh, it, by doing that, uh, it reinforces not just the, the centrality of the native narrative to North America's narrative, but it also reinforces the fact that Native people are still here and they're still shaping uh, the American narrative in meaningful ways. And there's uh, this offers somewhat concrete ways of of of, of addressing these issues. Uh, in a, a sensitive and, uh, way and, and in a responsible way as Brady says without uh, uh, it, it, that allows for the pushing aside of the, the stereotypes and mythologies that sometimes dominate our narratives.
2: So this uh, next question that I have requires a bit of an intro micro intro from me. So uh to produced reflective comments on uh, your American uh, Native American strict economies and difference. Um, Among Native communities, in her essay, intersects with several essays in the volume, uh, from uh, Marvin Richardson's comparisons between racial classification and peoplehood, to uh, Anne McGrath's essay on a transnational and, quoting her, deep time history uh, of the Native Americas as well as worldwide Indigenous peoples. How did you approach editing essays on these particular topics and teaching reflections and perhaps the, the collection as a whole? Did the authors have free reign or please
1: elaborate? Um yeah, if you don't mind me starting, Brady, the uh, um we did in effect give everyone free reign. Uh we approached uh, our our uh uh our, our basic game plan as we we uh, uh started to, to envision the, the uh the, the 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 volume um was to ask individuals who are sp- specialists in specific topics that we felt were crucially important to get across. Uh, And, and so um, uh, understanding that, that uh, uh, these individuals are, experts in their, their fields. Uh, we, we did give them free reign. Um, we asked them to minimize, uh, historiography speak, because this is not a, uh, a volume that's intended to deal or, or to, to help people with, with research. It's because it's specifically teaching focused. We asked, uh, or the only real limitation that we put on anyone was that they, they, uh, um, Talk about what they do in the classroom. How do they teach the topics uh, that that they are expert, uh, you know, expert on? Um, and and uh, what we we got for uh, rough drafts was really um, uh, to me was was uh, exhilarating, inspiring because uh, everybody seems to take a slightly different approach to the classroom, but everything that they offer. Um, it, really interconnects as you note these uh, several of the the, the uh, uh uh the essays interconnect with certain themes and certain ways of doing uh, uh classroom activity um and it was it made it very easy to create uh, sort of thematic coherence uh and then the one other thing that i would add to this is in the case of someone like uh, um theta Purdue, uh, Ann McGrath, or Don Fixico, is these are senior scholars, and so we asked them to step back perhaps from specific topics and instead just reflect on the idea of teaching native history. Um, and and uh, so we, we cr- divided the book into multiple parts, and the senior scholar section um, is really all these broader reflections on, on you know, what they've seen in the classroom and how they approach these meta topics, if you will, such as transnational uh, indigeneity or, and, and uh, Theda's case, she talked quite a bit about her own uh, career and how it evolved and how her teaching evolved to fit uh, her, her career. And uh, so it, it, uh, it all turned out to be very themat- thematically coherent and fit together well um, within the context of us letting them write what they wanted.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a perfect uh, summarization, Chris. I, I agree. I think that having, you know, Fixico and Theta and so forth as senior scholars in the field, you know, uh, really to kind of comment on what uh, what's known as ethno history, which develops as a field after the Indian Claims Commission and so forth, to give that rich perspective, you know, because they were there uh, when a lot of sort of new ways of approaching American history, the new West, if you will, and American Indian history in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth. And a lot has changed, different approaches and so forth. And they have the perspective of a lot of the uh, institutional dialogues that have taken place through the decades. And they've been in the classroom. Uh, they have that that rich perspective. And so that that's, the, you know, to echo what Chris is saying there. And, and again, I'll also, um, you know, uh, just reiterate, too, that all of the scholars in our books are, are top-notch researchers, you know, and that's great, and, and I hope people read, you know, their articles and, and books and so forth, but like Chris said, we really wanted to emphasize the a, a pedagogical approach here, because for other teachers to say, hey, that's a really good idea to include my students, to hear their voices, a lot of what uh, is in that book, and those chapters, is really a way of, of opening uh, discussions and classroom dialogue with students who uh, oftentimes, if you're just talking about your own research and so forth, they're just going to remain silent. And some of them may remain silent even when you're trying to include them. But uh, but this is a way of, of really getting some good perspectives from students and activities and learning how to approach a wide array of topics in Native history and studies and so forth. So. That was really our limitation is if you gave us something that was just like good research, we'd say, well, can you make this more about how you actually teach the subject to students in the classroom?
1: Mm-hmm. It, and if I could uh, just build a little bit more on that, one of the key uh, uh The key issues for for, uh, the two of us, and and that is reflected, I think, really well in the volume, is that this is very interdisciplinary. And as a result, uh, you have... Very uh, uh, different lenses onto the question of of the the appropriate teaching of of Native history, whether it's uh, 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 Nancy Nilo's art approach or Bernard Perley's experiential learning through uh, anthropological approaches to Native history, or uh, you know Rose Strimlaw's very in depth detailed conversation about uh, allotment and gender. all of these uh, uh, lenses uh, offer a, a a number of different uh, and and very interesting and useful in the classroom approaches to better understanding and teaching native Native history.
2: So, Mark Vendelat's essay on teaching the Indian Wars is pretty salient for current debates in California community colleges and state universities. It dovetails with the uh, this issue uh, regarding. Uh, Genocide and the idea of genocide, but we'll get to that uh, concept in a second. How can you comment how whether or not you will how you wanted your essays to maybe perhaps give an idea or 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 kind of a you mentioned pedagogy a pedagogical focus on uh, you know the the native experience of such Indian wars in history, uh, as well as particularly I want to I don't want to regionalize this, but uh, in uh, the uh, the so-called Western part of the United States.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, To to, uh, uh, start a response to that, one of the the reasons that I think Mark's essay is so important and and good is that uh, um, he, he takes a topic which has been uh, widely discussed from the the Euro-American perspective for a long time and and, um, asks the the audience to flip the script, so to speak, or to think about the complexities of something like the Battle of Greasy Grass or the Battle of of Little Bighorn. Uh, Why, uh, how... uh, the the, the, the uh, meaningful ways, I guess the best way of putting it is the, the meaningful ways of, of thinking about these complex issues which don't necessarily um, – Uh, reflect the triumphant narrative that typically is discussed when thinking about American military history um, as regards, particularly as regards uh, warfare with native people in the 19th century. Um, And he's asking very difficult questions or asking students to address very difficult questions uh, and sensitive questions. And uh, uh, in doing that, he, I think he gives uh, a number of ways of, of providing, um, Nuance to stories that that uh, typically don't receive that nuance, and and uh, th- this is something that that is particularly important when you think about um, uh, the the question of of um, uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm thinking particularly of you know env- the environmental history of California and and the. The uh, the the ways in which um, uh, settler colonialism has altered environmental narratives, and the way that that uh, um, the mission system uh, in California um, uh, challenged to such a degree settler agency. Well, you you don't. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, indigenous agency. I'm sorry. Uh, and and uh, um, Mark offers insight or, or uh, offers ways of rethinking that script or rethink somebody like Junipero Cerro uh, and, and, uh, uh, whether or not, um, sainthood is most appropriate or, or if there are other ways of thinking about those behaviors, uh, and their impacts on, on, uh, native North America.
3: Yeah. And I yeah. think it's really important too, because, uh, I've heard, uh, people in the classroom and, and others comment that the native you know, tribal nations that um, were involved in, in conflict with the United States and prior to that, the Europeans um, and so forth, oftentimes were classified as, quote, peaceful or, quote, hostile, based upon the level of resistance that they put up against expansionism into their homelands and territories here on the plains and certainly before that back east and the Great Lakes and Ohio River Valley. And I I find that basically, a, a, quite frankly, a perpetuation of that master narrative is that the complexity for tribes that were, from their perspectives, there was also splits in tribal nations in terms of you know yeah. so called accommodationists versus those who, who were tired of that. Um, and it was which agonizing. mark shows well, absolutely, and and, and then also that overall that they were basically engaged in what you could call their own wars for independence to to fight for their their uh, their sovereignty and the right to to live in their homelands and live their way of life on their terms. and I think that it's very important to do that because it, just strictly from how they're taught, you can get caught up in the uh, I guess the the nuances and the interesting sort of battles and so forth but what that chapter does is it puts the the human perspective into this and the complexity, and then simply assigning you know peaceful versus warlike tribes. I mean that's oftentimes the way narrators will speak in documentaries too. You know, uh, you know the I saw a documentary a video clip uh, from like eight years ago about the Northern Ponka here, and the narrator said the Ponka were a quote peaceful tribe. Well, you know who's telling who's what lens and what uh, what perspective are we privileging? These sort of categorizations. Again, it's coming from basically non-native voices and so forth. And so I think that that also rectifies some of how these sorts of uh, situations and episodes and so forth are are spoken, how they're spoken up and so forth. Yeah. So that, that, oh, go
1: ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you go for it. Oh, oh, well, I was just going to say that actually uh, uh, adds directly into the conversation regarding, uh, um, you know, rethinking uh, mythologies uh it, the the you know the general grand narrative of the american experience for decades if not centuries has been that uh europeans uh come to the americas and they encounter uh with, with all of their geopolitical complexity baggage of europe uh that they immediately begin to uh, uh put into to play to reshape the continent and and you know european imperial ways etc cetera, etc cetera, um without ever thinking twice about the fact that they they are actually invading a space that has equal geopolitical complexity, right? This uh, it, it, the uh, uh... What Mark does, I think very well and, and several of the other chapters do uh, do too, is is show that this is a complex world into which the Europeans are coming and to which the Europeans must negotiate uh, over time and and um, that that sort of reality gets lost uh, in in you know the grand narratives of of American inevitability. Hmm.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: All right. Uh, so we will get to genocide in a moment. Uh, so on that note, I, I, I found Joshua uh, Thunderlittle's and Nia uh, Tom's essay on land acknowledgements in higher education uh, very compelling. Uh, can either of you or both uh, engage a little bit with these arguments uh, and address how and why history teachers should or shouldn't, or I don't want to impose some sort of binary on you, uh, and perhaps uh, reformulate land acknowledgements into curriculum and uh, pedagogy.
3: Well, yeah, I think that the land acknowledgments were kind of all the rave, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago when they got their start, I believe, in Canada with First Nations. Right. You, you And it was a way of trying to pay respect to the lands that various universities, college and, and institutions really do occupy and uh, sit upon indigenous homelands, you know, in many ways and to also pay respect to the ongoing histories, the, you know, the continual existence of, of these peoples and nations and so forth. And what I really appreciate about that chapter, you know, Josh is Ogallaga Lakota and Dr. Mai Tom is a citizen of the Walker River Paiute and she has Pomo ancestry from, you know, California. And when they talk about the empty gestures, I mean, again, land acknowledgments made their ways down into the into the states and my program has one. And we I always preface them with these are empty gestures unless, you know, a certain university and so forth uh, increases the recruiting of Native students, uh, takes care of them sometimes with with the tuition, uh, the hiring of Native American faculty at the full time level uh helping with responsible curriculum um and and kind of developing i i think what i would call like a good native learning community right unless those sorts of initiatives are at least started with some sort of substantiation behind it then land acknowledgements, and many native peoples both in canada and here in the united states are frustrated by not seeing any real action taken You know, and a lot of times land acknowledgements will speak of uh, indigenous peoples in the past tense, you know, and that's also an understandable sort of bone of contention. So it's like, no, we're still here. And and so I think that it's one of those things that there's good intentions behind that, but there needs to be some sort of um, kind of backup to it, you know, that it can't just be reciting basically a very flowery, Uh, land acknowledgement that doesn't basically positively impact the uh, lived experience of Native students and faculty at these institutions and wherever you really give them. Um, And that also, I think, ties into, um, you know, I've heard Native faculty also understandably take note of they get nonstop requests to give talks and speeches during Native Heritage Month and sometimes for Indigenous Peoples Day in October without any sort of compensation, you know? And I think that that's kind of tied to the fact that, you know, Native peoples want their labor uh, to to be respected and not taken for granted. And I, I, I kind of tie that to land acknowledgments is that there needs to be um, some carry th- follow through um, Besides just, uh, like I said, there's some beautiful land acknowledgments. Um, Ours is fairly simple and to the point, and I spend most of my time before reading it to to various audiences to say that that these are hollow unless there's, like I said, some follow-through. You know, the last point I'll make before I, you know, turn it over to Chris is it follows waves of, you know, various initiatives, whether it be, you know, multiculturalism, affirmative action in some cases, now it's DEIA initiatives. And a lot of times, those aren't—they aren't making the inroads that they need to, uh, because of institutional barriers and so forth. It's like just kind of reshuffling the deck, and um, there's still a lot of inequity and so forth. And so, I think that uh, you know, I, I've done my best uh, where I teach to to get upper administration and and other departments and so forth to to take note of how important it is to to kind of follow through on some concrete uh, initiatives besides just the, the land acknowledgement. I think uh, Mai and, and Josh did a really good job collaborating on this. The,
1: the, I think that was perfectly put. I don't have anything to add. I think, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um,
2: okay. So the next uh, our, our next topic here is going to be uh, the genocide. Um, so really, in his, in his essay, the critiques, I think he points out uh, that, uh, or uh, this person points out that textbooks and you know other other studies too, uh, kind of focus on cultural genocide of Native Americans. Uh, still address violence against Native bodies and uh, violence against uh, landscapes and environments and seascapes, but uh, there, there's definitely just kind of a, a, a focus on cultural genocide, which is, I think, very, very important. Uh, but how and why is this uh, concept connected to, yet distinct from, uh, the genocide and studies by, for example, uh, Benjamin Madley. I bring him up because uh, I use uh, Madley uh, and, you know, there's been criticism of that study, so I give a variety of studies actually on this issue um so that's why i wrote of the example um can you provide any advice on approaching uh
1: genocide in
2: the classroom
1: brady go ahead
2: uh
3: well, i'll let you start I...
1: oh okay um yeah if you, you 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 hear us playing a little bit of ping pong here because it's, this is a it's a difficult question uh it, it, it the uh, um i think For me personally, I think genocide can be uh, um, well, it's a it's a topic that can that can raise hackles if you are under certain political pressures uh, from, you know, if you're teaching say at the high school level or what have you, uh, uh, in terms of, of, um, you know, suggesting that, that, uh, the United States might have greater complexity to it than, than, um, uh, they want to put into the classroom. Uh, but I think there's still ways of approaching this in, in very important ways. Uh, I think, uh, um, I think Madley's approach in, in, uh, um, as far as what's going on in California is very persuasive. I think, uh, um, I think, I think, too, the, uh, about uh, um, Paul Kelton and uh, Ty Edwards' uh, approach to thinking about genocide through the extension of, of disease. Uh, and and uh, for the longest time, disease was uh, has been thought of in a sort of Alfred Crosby, Colombian exchange sort of way, where Europeans are somewhat let off the hook because, well, gosh, you can't control pathog- pathogen extension, right? It's not, uh, it's not the Europeans' fault. Uh, uh, yes, they they brought the pathogens with them, but there aren't. With certain, with the exception of certain specific uh, examples in the early early period, uh, uh, they're not systematically spreading the disease or disease is. Um, but but you know Kelton and, and Edwards show very well that you just need to follow the disease vectors. What's causing these? Uh, um, uh, what's causing epidemics? What's leading to population collapse? Well, it's the extension of the slave trade on the East Coast. It's the extension of deerskin hunting. That you know, both both of these things make their way all the way into the interior to the Mississippi River and even across the Mississippi River in the early period. And those are disease vectors, and those are specifically brought by Europeans. And I think you can. Uh, um, you can talk about that in the classroom without necessarily raising political hackles. <laughs> um, uh, I think one of the things I think that, that that Gray is talking about in his essay in terms of, of cultural genocide is, well, he also makes a distinction between ethnic cleansing and, and genocide, which is a whole other conversation to have. But, but uh, um, he, he uh, uh, basically... Uh, my understand the way I understand it is that cultural genocide is a form of you know metaphys- metaphorical I'm sorry erasure uh, where the uh, that that plays right into the idea that's been about been around since the 17th century of the myth of the vanished Indian where you know the uh, uh, they're they're just not just they're culturally removed but they're metaphorically whoosh, vanished, gone, and past tense, and, and um, I think uh, the way of, uh, at least the, that I tend to approach the genocide question in the classroom, is to say you had these horrifying realities, but Native people persist, Native people are resilient. You know, the, the, the genocide narrative isn't the end of the story. It's a crucial element to understanding the continent's experience, but it's not the end of the story. Native people are. They aren't were. Um, this is particularly critical uh, when thinking about my, my particular field of the, you know, the Native South, um, where Native people are metaphorically erased in 1838. Uh, and I mean, it's, uh, it is, it's, it's metaphorical and cultural genocide that persists to this day. Some of my closest friends in, uh, uh, native friends in, in the native South talk about how people say, well, you can't be, you can't be native. There aren't any natives in the South, right? They they were all removed. Well, no, not true. And cultural resi- the 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 cultural resilience of groups like ponies or or Lumbees uh, are are proof of that. Um, and and so that that's I I think um, that's a long winded way of, of at least how I think about the issue of genocide and and um, how sh- how the classroom should deal with it. Uh, yeah,
3: and what I would echo is I know that cultural genocide is considered i think it was a ralphiel lemkin after world war ii included cultural attempts to uh to eradicate life ways and so forth and you know you've got the late 19th century with boarding schools the federal ban on native religions and then you've got an allotment you know to um and, and that's been periodic and so i think that You know, I do, you know, obviously there is genocide, and I think it was just less systematic than some other historical ones, right, you're dealing with through the centuries. But, you know, Native peoples uh, have dealt with uh, the the entire apparatus of colonialism, and it had many different facets to it, Uh, forced removals, disease Uh, the warfare, all of that stuff, the assimilation. And so that does constitute genocide, however, you know, whichever definition you approach it. But like Chris, I think it's also important to do a very responsible balancing act and to tell the whole truth on that is that despite, you know, things like boarding schools here and residential schools in Canada, uh, that these, you know, what they call the, quote, de-Indianization programs were horrifyingly destructive, but they weren't successful in the long run is that Native peoples uh have a resiliency. I mean, I, I look at COVID, the pandemic, which has lowered the life expectancy of Native people by six years. And uh you give people those statistics and it's just they're kind of their mind is blown, right? And so you do kind of a careful balancing act of you know demonstrating these historical episodes Uh, But you don't want to lose track of the fact of the agency and the resiliency of Native peoples, both then that we're encountering and experiencing these devastation, uh, devastating uh, episodes. Uh, And, um, you know, my my mentor, you know, her name's Carolyn. She's Winnebago Tribe, Nebraska, and she's taught in various capacities for over 50 years. And she always say, we're still here Mm now. You know, when things get tough, you know, she'll always say, well, you know, we are still here. Look what we've endured. as as Native peoples. So, but it's a tough one, because particularly for intro classes, you don't want to just go into presenting Native peoples in a kind of a caricature of hapless victims, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not accurate. It's not fair. Um, But you also have to, I, I think, discuss these sorts of things. I mean, You know, one thing you can start with is that by 1900, some estimates for Native Americans here in the United States was anywhere from 275,000 to 235,000. How did that happen? You know, and the estimates for pre-contact population oftentimes continues to get higher and higher with archaeology and so forth. And then you just go through, how did we get to this point? How did, you know, what happened there? And so it's a very, very complex question, but... I think that with with good teaching and scholarship, that you can thread that needle between telling the truth of genocide and also demonstrating the resiliency and the ongoing tenacity of Indigenous people in this country and in Canada and worldwide.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To build on that just for a second, too, the the point of a conversation when you're laying out uh, uh, to students what uh, the realities were. Um, it, the, the point isn't to say, well, all people of European descent are bad. All all people of European descent are evil. No, that's, that, that, that's not the point. The the, the, the the point is to say, um, these were were uh, uh, these were realities. And to put it uh, to build on on what Brady was saying, uh, you know, in the twentieth century, when the government talked about. Uh, "Quote unquote extermination program." It was what it was, you know, in the nineteen fifties, and there's no getting around that. Um, but the the crucial point in all of it is the, to, to, at least to me, is the uh, uplifting idea of, of agency and resilience, uh, which you see reborn uh, particularly powerfully in the nineteen sixties. I mean, it was it was always there, but but uh, and and the the revitalization that uh, of sovereignty and 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 uh, uh, you know the the power of tribal nations that you start to that starts to develop in the '60s and '70s. You're seeing particularly powerfully today, um, or, or at least increasingly powerfully today. And, and it's, it, it, this is crucial, central to the, our, our uh, continent's history, uh, historical narrative, and crucial to our ongoing understanding of who we are as Americans.
2: Okay. Okay. So. Uh... This question is uh, directed at Brady. Hello, Chris, if you want to chime in, you can. Um, so Brady, uh, can you elaborate, um, if you wish to, more on your uh, uh, background, educational or uh, otherwise, and how it contributes or doesn't contribute or both to your understanding of and teaching the history of uh, uh, three topics, uh, specific Native American uh, creation stories, ideas on interrelatedness, uh, as well as sacred sites, and um, perhaps uh, examples of any kind of great moments that you've that you've encountered in teaching this, and any uh, these three specific topics, as well as uh, any difficulties.
3: Right. All right. Well, big question. And I'll hopefully a big answer here. I'll start with the, the fact I was adopted at birth, uh, and uh, it was in my late teens that I connected with my biological relatives. I have kind of an interesting, I guess, pedigree. My uh, my biological mother, who I knew for over 20 years when I made that connection, uh, is uh, Luke Cordere, Ojibwe out of Hayward, Wisconsin. And we have ties to the Bad River Ojibwe also in Wisconsin. And then my birth father is from Havana, Cuba. And so I jokingly would tell people I'm Q-Bibwe. Um <laughs> And I have uh, my birth siblings, I think, are pretty good with Spanish. They live in Chicago. I am still here trying to learn Ojibwe slowly, but surely. And so I grew up with a non-native family who it's just been the best parents I could ever ask for. And I was very blessed to have this opportunity to be raised the way I was and also to meet my birth family. And um, I made that trip uh, with Carolyn, who I mentioned earlier, uh, up to Hayward, her mother was alive at the time and had been separated from her brother uh, Clifford um, in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, where the Ho-Chunk Nation currently is. So you've got the Winnebago tribe, Nebraska, the Ho-Chunk Nation up in Black River Falls. And so Carolyn said, hey, let's just get this road trip going here and mom can meet her brother and you can meet your family. And and so uh, that changed everything for me. And so I am a Uh, a citizen of the Lakotoray Ojibwe tribe out of Hayward, Wisconsin, but I was uh, hired at UNO as a PhD student all but dissertation at the University of Kansas in 2007, and they had this special program where UNO's religious studies department hired me on, and I would teach some intro classes while I finished my dissertation, which took far too long, Um, and I thought I was going to have to go back to Toys R Us at the time. I didn't think it was going to work out, but I I finished and and um and so my home department is religious studies and I've, I'm the director of Native American Studies program. I think that knowing, you know, for me, I take the approach that I always want my Native students, Native friends, Native faculty and everybody to know where I'm coming from, which is an honest place. So I'm always very very quick to point out, I was not raised traditionally Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, as they, they refer to themselves uh, in their language. And to just let people know that, you know, I replaced uh, a, another mentor of mine um, who just turned 88 last uh, last week. And they came to my class today. It was a great honor to have them still be able to guest lecture. So I inherited uh, this position and of course it's a weighty topic native spiritual traditions and american religions and um i have with the, the grace and kindness of many uh, communities here in nebraska which the lakota ways are very prevalent and so participating in ceremony and being being able to talk to elders and and some medicine people and And so forth has been enlightening and it's been a a really richly rich rich and rewarding uh kind of walk for me and uh and i think it served me well to just let people know i'm not trying to say i'm a, a master or practitioner of native american american ceremonies is that i can speak from what i've experienced and you know, uh, but I don't claim to be, you know, the the super expert. And that has kept me in good stead with native communities is just being honest uh, on that. Um, when it comes to one of my favorite topics is creation stories, because the chapter I I wrote, I tried to emphasize that these are really not just stories of the past, narratives of how things came to be, but really they're roadmaps on how these communities and, and so forth are to conduct themselves today. They look back to those. And and usually I really was fascinated by the idea that in many indigenous creation stories, humans are amongst the last of, to arrive. And you could say that, well, we're the sort of you know, save the best for last, uh, the the cherry on top of the creation Sunday, so to speak. But really, indigenous people interpret that as that we're like the younger siblings of what came before us, plant and animal relatives, the waters, the rocks, the clouds, the stars. And those stories are illustrating that, you know, you learn how these other than human persons, right, non-human persons conducted themselves. And you see that creation was a collaborative effort. And these are ethical teachings that you know that you have to work together in life um for human beings and that you have to reciprocate to be a good relative. So they're not stories that are just sort of bygone eras, that they're always about the now. You know, these are stories that you find. and when you you know native peoples tell them there's certain etiquette that's followed, certain seasons you'll tell these stories, but when you tell them it's like temporal demarcations just disappear and you yourself in the present find yourself that's that's your story now. It's part of you, you're part of it. It's a way of connecting you to the to the stories and to your ancestors and to your to your non-human relatives. And the other component that I find fascinating is uh, my dissertation project ultimately was a biography of John Reed Swan, a very renowned, famous anthropologist, started in the late, very late 1800s, worked until like 1940 something known for Southeastern, working with the Southeastern uh, tribal nations that were forcibly removed into what was Indian territory, of course, it's Oklahoma. Before that, uh, he did some work with the Tlingit and Haida and so forth uh, in Alaska and what have you. But what I was most fascinated with, uh, by were these dialogues that took place between you know uh, early anthropology, late 1800s, early 20th century, and Native peoples, because it, the, the emphasis was on trying to record uh, all of these narratives and traditions and so forth before Native peoples were going to supposedly disappear, um, you know, and to collect these for posterity's sake. And a lot of times, I, I think, it, speaking of agency, as I started to find, and others have taken this, this topic uh, in, in really interesting directions, that Native peoples understood that anthropologists had the ear of Washington with like policy and so forth. And during the late 19th century, early 20th century, you're in the, sort of the throes of a hardcore assimilation policy. And so what I found is that many Native peoples would agree to speak to anthropologists, but they intentionally would editorialize current events, what was happening to them. So they would shoehorn recent policy developments that were adversely affecting their way of life into the form of creation stories. And, and, it was a way of trying to say, look, you know, see us as people of now with our own needs and so forth. And they were trying to, in a good way, manipulate the anthropologists who could go back and, and sort of, uh, uh, talk to Washington to change policy because, of course, Native peoples weren't weren't doing that, able to do that. And initially, anthropologists sort of said, boy, this is a sign of cultural decline. This is so sad because they're inserting contemporary issues into the form of the creation stories. And finally, some of them got it, you know, and they started to to argue um, in Washington for a better humane policy towards Native peoples that change from what we call a like cultural evolutionary approach which you categorize people as at the savage stage of development, the barbarian. And of course, you'll eventually get to the civilization stage. And then that change to cultural uh, relativism is really, a, I think, a direct result of Native peoples um, doing this. And, you know, so so using creation stories in very you know uh, creative ways to get the attention of these anthropologists and sort of alter uh, federal Indian policy, I think people like James Mooney, um, you know, became a big advocate for the Native American Church you know, after working with tribes in Oklahoma on this. And as a result of him saying, hey, this is a good thing, you know, he got his license taken away. He couldn't work with Native Peoples anymore. So I see that creation stories are just such a rich field of, uh, of ongoing sort of um power for Native peoples today. And of course, interrelatedness. Uh, I was deeply influenced, like a lot of, I think, Native scholars like uh, Vine Deloria Jr. And I was very fortunate to meet him on a few occasions and how he understood this. And this has been sort of substantiated in my further research is that the starting point for making sense of, of the world is interrelatedness, that things go together. You find in Native languages uh, you know, phrases and so forth, whether it be Matakiase, the Lakota, all my relations, or here with the Omaha and the Ponca, Nebraska, Iwa, Dewangade, you know, that we are all related, all my relatives. And just sort of seeing that that uh, everything goes together through relationships. And then interrelatedness is so tied to creation stories because uh, part of being a good relative is maintaining those relationships through re- reciprocity and. And the, the goal is to maintain balance. And so you've got to basically see that things that don't necessarily maybe go together uh, do through relationship. I mean, one of my favorite examples would be uh, they would always say that you'd find the bison here on the plains and they love sunflowers. They just frolic all over the ground, be covered in them. And you always found blackbirds in the vicinity, sometimes perched on their back. Well, all of that sort of rolling around on the soil would you know show insects and and so forth so the birds would blackbirds would get kind of a free lunch but in a lot of stories it was taught how these two distinct peoples became good friends through stories and so forth that they went together so there's the intersection of sacred knowledge and practical everyday knowledge then there's no distinction between that you know um and then finally when it comes to sacred sites, is that it's so crucial that that's the frame of reference that so many Native peoples historically used to understand themselves. It comes from that perspective of the, of the land, which is like a relative. And if you live in that place long enough, you become that place, in a sense, you know, your identity. um, And that you have an allegiance to that place to, and the, where you perform ceremony. Um, And of course, many sacred places now are in national parks and so forth. And I'm happy to report that a lot of parks, uh, rangers, and, and services, and so forth, are very open now to working with Native peoples, uh, like Effigy Mounds is one of my favorite places in Iowa, which is right by Wisconsin, and you couldn't have a better, you know, friendly staff that allow Native people support perform ceremony there, and and so forth. And the other thing to keep in mind about place is that, you know, we, we understand that from a Western historical approach, which Chris and I are trained in, is that we have kind of a temporal approach where we kind of privilege chronology and when something happened. And for Native peoples, it's not necessarily when something happened, it's where it happened. So there's a spatial approach to doing history in which the land becomes a kind of a history book in which stories of things that happened to your community and so forth. You go to that place and it's associated with an event and a story and so forth. And so all of those things with my own background. And I always tell people I'm still learning, you know, I'm kind of an ongoing work in progress. And, and just for me, you know, with my identity is to always being honest and so forth about the limits of my knowledge and experience having grown up in a non-native family has really people have just kind of taken me under their wing and just been really gracious with their time and with their knowledge and so forth. So I, I kind of go into that uh, in my chapter because I've had Native students before in my class, and I learned that you just, and I never did this because it happened to me as an undergrad sometimes, that someone would say, well, you have Native heritage or what have you, and so you become the person that the, the teacher wants to validate what they're saying or to call on you nonstop, and non-native students don't necessarily want to be called that you know even if you're not meaning to embarrass them or whatever so i just want to emphasize too that in in my approach to teaching is uh i'll ask open ended questions and if someone doesn't want to answer you know that's okay too but i never never want to just say what do you think and point at a student just call them out you know so but yeah i'm, I'm happy to kind of elaborate if you have any kind of follow-up questions on that i, I guess my difficulties that i've encountered I've, not really I, I i had more trouble pu- students just you know arguing about grades when i was a teaching assistant at ku I, i've been very fortunate to not really have any problems in the classroom uh since i've been
2: at UNL. all right so we're getting to the uh our final questions here uh so your final essay which i thought was interesting was uh written from the perspective of a
1: student rather than a teacher what do you hope students can glean from your volume Actually, the, the this is a, a a perfect segue from from Brady's Brady's uh, uh, last comment. There, the the, uh, the the reason that we included the the. Uh, the student perspective, um, and and by the way, she's about to enter the, the the classroom as a teacher herself. Before much longer, she's about to complete uh, uh, her Ph.D. in archaeology at Cornell. But but she's uh, uh, the, her point was to remind teachers that just because she is native, that does not mean that she should represent Native people in the classroom. Uh, that that uh, you know she uh, herself is still learning. Um, her her uh, uh, her heritage. She's still learning the Tuscarora language, um, and it uh, made her very uncomfortable uh, as a student, as an undergraduate. Uh, to to as Brady put it, to be put on the spot, uh, to be uh, to for people who, in good faith, might say, uh, might have said, uh, "Well, gosh, Taylor, you know, you're you're Tuscarora. What what do you think of?" Point X. Uh, Well, you know, Tuscaroras may not uh, have ever set foot in California. What would they have to say about the California California indigeneity, right? And 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 so uh, it it it, that was the central point of the chapter or or of her piece is is a a cautionary note to uh, uh, just to to uh, uh, not to try to pin down um, native students in ways that can make them uncomfortable or in ways that they uh, don't, they aren't necessarily experts. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll stop there, Brady, if you want to add. <laughs> no, I think it was an excellent chapter. And,
3: you know, for Native, um, to have the perspective of a Native graduate student in archaeology, which is a discipline that started off as a colonial discipline, you know, mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, with repatriation with NAGPRA in 1990, that I think is very helpful to have Native representation in those fields, whether it be archaeology or anthropology, to really serve as sort of a bulwark, if you will, against further colonization of those disciplines and to, to help make them more responsible and accountable to Native peoples. And so her perspective, you know, uh, was very enlightening because when it comes to things like repatriation, I guess, you know, before she wrote that, I was kind of thinking NAGPRA has been very successful uh, here on the plains, but she had some cautionary tales about what's going on back east, you know, that it's not quite as progressive of of an attitude as I would like to see. So I thought that was very helpful. And, yeah, just to sort of, you know, echo what Chris said is that, you know, that chapter does emphasize is that let your Native instructors and students be who they are without the added burden and sense of responsibility of having to sort of be a spokesperson for all Native people.
1: Right. Yeah, it's almost I I, I tell my students sometimes, OK, well, um, I'm of English descent. So, you know, should every question about England come to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, well. Pfft. I know about England right Uh, uh, and beyond that what uh, uh, or or what uh, students can glean from the volume, Um, I I think the volume offers uh, uh, students uh, good questions to ask their teachers. Right. These are uh, uh, for, for students who uh, are committed to the idea of, of better understanding um, uh, Native history, heritage and culture. Uh, these uh, the, the book offers a, a, a blueprint for thinking about complicating the classroom and, and ways that they can uh, with their their instructors, they can learn um, uh, to move away from the, the the myths and grand narratives that typically define the American experience.
2: Okay, so kind of wrapping things up here, do you have uh, any additional guidance for our listeners in California and the wider United States, perhaps the world?
3: <laughs> I would just say that encourage as much you know, learning about Native people's history, contemporary realities. I, I'm so glad to see that pop culture, you know, is starting to have more Native creatives in control of, of the portrayal of Native peoples, whether it be reservation dogs and, and others. And so I think that's really good because when you add that Native voice, whether for a movie at the script writing level and director and actors, you, that's where you see a lot of magic happen. You know, and I think that if our volume can help kind of spur a greater interest and engagement and, and there's so much good material out there. And just to to keep at the forefront, the the ongoing histories the native peoples are here and the, the relevancy throughout the historical record is is very powerful. So, you know, I just would encourage people to to continue to engage with what's out there and to learn as much as possible with contemporary issues facing Native peoples and so forth. And there's a lot of really um, exciting things going on in Native tribal nations and communities and so forth. And so if we if we can play a part in increasing that engagement, then I, I consider this a success on that
1: front. Absolutely. It, to build on that, I, I would I would say for, for me, the, the best advice I can impart as a uh, as a non-native person is to emphasize the need to approach the topic with respect and humility. Uh, and seriousness, um, I would also say that, well, what I'm about to say, I, I fully recognize Brady and I've chatted about this. I fully recognize that uh, it's uh, it, it can be a controversial subject. But if uh, reaching out to, to Native communities near where you are um, it, and offering to collaborate, uh, and I emphasize collaborate. Uh, it, it, it needs to be a partnership. Uh, you, uh, it, it's not a good idea to reach out to Native communities and tell them what you're going to do, and you know you're going to bring your students. And no, to to, to collaborate, uh, and and uh, um, uh, but but to reach out with with that understanding um, is another uh, a layer of of. Uh, um, better understanding and teaching Native American history.
2: Absolutely. Well, okay, that does it uh, for this episode. Uh, Chris and Brady, thanks for joining us.
3: That was thanks a great very much. Yeah, Love we were on really the appreciate chat. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, so my first podcast. So, I'm- <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, so thank you for having me. Very well.
1: Absolutely.
2: <laughs> All right. This podcast has been brought to you by the New Books Networks. History and Native American uh, Studies channels, as well as by the Communications Committee for the Faculty Association of California Community College. Please tune in to both next time. Thanks for joining us.